together. Let's find together Psalm 35. In Psalm 35, and we'll actually read verses 9 and 10, uh, and then we'll, we'll in more detail refer to them later. Um, in Psalm 35, verses 9 and 10. And I echo what, what Brother Kyle said. I'm not the, the oldest person in the room, nor am I the youngest. These are very unprecedented days in which we live. Um, I don't, uh, I will say that I am, I won't say that I am shocked, though. There's the difference. I, I expected probably a few years ago if someone had said this is the way it is, I would feel that I would be more shocked. I'm actually not. I'm grieved, but I'm not shocked. We're a very angry nation. Full of very, very angry people. And... Uh, it doesn't take much of a spark for that kind of anger to, to boil over, does it? It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. Um, it takes a lot more leadership to lead us through that. And I would add, it's not the kind of leadership that we are used to from either party. From either party. It's not, it's not the kind of... We, we, we have created for ourselves in many ways maybe even a myth of the exceptional nature of our leadership. Occasionally the office is occupied by exceptional men. It's not always. And very seldom is. And so for that reason, I don't know where the... I can't put my finger... I know where the future lies. I know the answer. We all know the answer. We're here gathered in our church to celebrate the answer. But at the same time, I can't just go say to you that, that, um, that man, this is the guy right here that, that we should have. Because I don't know where to find those people. I'm not sure those people exist in the political realm. I'm just not sure. And so I want to I look at, at, a, at a response for us. And I had no clue. I feel that what I have to say tonight fits perfectly into this. I actually wrote it in my little black book that I carry with myself everywhere days and days ago. And having no clue that the, the very day in which I would even prepare it, while after finishing my, my work today, I've, I have long days nowadays, after finishing my work before I put the final touches on this sermon, I'm listening to the news broadcast, having no clue that those things I had jotted down days ago would actually seem to fit with today. But God knows better than I do. Here in Psalm 35, verses 9 through 10, David writes this. He says, Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in His salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, what? Who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong from him, the poor and needy from him who robs him? Now, these, these are the beginning of my comments. Okay? In this psalm, Psalm 35, um, that oftentimes borders on lament. Do you know what I mean? At times it's a very hard, it's, it's long and it's a very hard and very dark psalm at times. In which David details what it's like to be, um, to be a child of God in a world in which that 
evil world doesn't just throw it back in your face, but uses even your pursuit of God as an attack point, a, a way to attack you. I mean, as I was driving here today, I was thinking that one of those things that disturbs me now so much about, about everything in which we dwell, I'm not, once again, not shocked, the Bible's abundantly clear about this, but was that things that you and I believe now, many of us who are old enough to do this, believe now to be true, are considered now dangerous, seditious things. But 40 years ago, virtually everyone claimed to believe them. The world in which we dwell has night and day changed in the last 40 years. Night and day changed. Now, like I said, a lot of people were lying 40 years ago. But everyone expected those things to be true, didn't they? We, we grew up in a world like that. And now we have inherited this. This. So I, I want to I try to bring a strategy to this. So give me a few moments. It, it uh, uh, clearly outlines to the believing world the pain of righteously serving the Lord in uncertain and hostile times. Now, that's the thing that's true that, that I will add going forward. The times in which we dwell are uncertain, but they are certain to be hostile toward God's people. They're certain to be dangerous times to declare the glory of the living God. Not that any time has been welcome to it. It's just as I've stated many times, Christianity was born literally by blood into blood in the first century. Into Roman emperors like Nero that slaughtered us for pleasure, that blamed us politically when it was expedient. So, so this shouldn't be new to us. Historically, in the Christian tradition, we understand these things have kind of always been this way. And, and then along the way, people who were right were almost always persecuted for being right. For being right. Being right, even in the Christian tradition, can draw such, such violence toward us. So we know they're going to be answered, but we also know that, that if they return to where they've always been, they'll be hostile and dangerous times. I know, to be honest with you, we talked about it, nobody really wants to hear it, but it's true. We've just been spoiled because for a brief moment, it was free and kind of easy to believe what we claim to believe. The Chinese do not enjoy such a privilege, do they? The Vietnamese do not enjoy such a privilege. The Iranians and the Iraqis do not enjoy such a privilege. In Pakistan, there's no such privilege. People still suffer. We just thought it didn't happen because it didn't happen to us. This unites each of us in the darkness of a sin-decimated of a, of a sin land. David writes some of his most inspiring words. In Psalm 35, verse 16, 1 King David uses the phrase, like profane mockers at a feast. Now, I, wanna, I, wanna, I, I thought about that a little bit. Thought about that a little bit, especially as I was driving in this, this evening. Okay, I thought about that idea that if you want to capture the current of the reaction to Christian truth, to gospel truth, that is 
scoffing and mockery. Now, I know it's no biggie, and maybe nobody's ever thought of it this way, but I want to help you just a little bit, maybe see things through my twisted eyes, and that is, you know, you punch me in the face, and it's going to really hurt, but if you mock me and you scoff at me over days and weeks and months and years, Long when I would have forgotten the punch in the face, I'm still being gutted every day because you're mocking me. What's that? What's the big deal? It's just words, baloney. It hurts deeply to be mocked and scoffed at. Now, politically speaking, one of the issues that's going on in the midst of this is is that that both sides hate each other. But one side had grown to specialize in mocking and scoffing at the other one. Laughing at people. Oh, you're just rubes. Hey, now I, I, I won't even count myself as one of the numbers. But Hillary Clinton's words were pretty powerful, weren't they, when she called the supporters of the current president deplorables. Less than people. People I wouldn't even talk to. Then you wonder how come there's so anger, so much anger. It doesn't excuse anything. But scoffing and mocking, biblically speaking, we understand that's a great offense. That's a powerful attack, especially when it endures and it lingers. But that's David's word said, like profane mockers at a feast. To capture the lingering attitude of those who would attack and defame him. However, David outlines for each believer. The correct, biblical, ethical, moral, and righteous reaction to wickedness. Now what David does is in this psalm is he doesn't just say, this is how bad my life is. What he says is, this is personally how bad the life of David is. Trying to be a righteous man in a world of unrighteousness. But he says, you followers, he, to, to whatever extent David understood he was writing scripture. The scriptures insist this. That he's writing scripture. So it is both true of David and true of us and eternally beneficial that we read it. We're going to David for this because David knew how to deal with hostility in a way that brings honor and glory to God. And not honor and glory to David. What's the Malcolm Gladwell TED talk today about, uh, about David and Goliath? It's fantastic in my classroom. Kids even liked it, which is a rarity. But he kind of debunks the way we've always taught it. It's a pretty fascinating theory is what it is. Just theory. But it's pretty fascinating. But at the end of it, it's pretty, pretty clear. He's like, look, David walked out there on that battlefield in the Valley of Elah, climbed down that mountain to face Goliath. And David knew exactly what he was doing. And he knew he was going to win. It was in the power of God. But it wasn't just stupendously miraculous. That David was really good at what he did. He knew he was going to win. He marched down there in power to face his enemy. To face his enemy. David could have reacted that way throughout his life. Saul killed his thousands. David killed his what? Ten thousands. Who's the greatest warrior in Israel's history? David, by a wide margin, he is the Michael Jordan of warriors. David does not fail in battle. 
the three or the thirty, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, all of those warriors, they all cowered before one man. And that was David. David could have killed his mockers. Anytime he wanted to. David's not Tony. People are capable of mocking me that I can do nothing about. David wasn't scared of them the way I so often am scared of people. David had no reason to be. But what David gives us here, wonderfully gives us, is a response that we can duplicate that brings glory to us. Because if David had killed all of them, it would have brought honor and glory to David. They would have sung songs about David. David wants us to sing a song about Christ. And not about ourselves. Look, in Psalm 35, 11 through 14, heart of the message comes from here. David writes this. He says, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they are sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. Look, some issues are being raised that should inform our hearts and also bring us some solace. We're not alone in this struggle. What I love about this, I want to be abundantly clear about this, is that God did not leave us uninformed and unprepared. He said, okay, they are attacking you and mocking you and scoffing at you in the most bitter way, in a way that you feel you will either fail into anger and frustration or just fail into dormancy. How many believers fail into dormancy? They just never say anything ever again. They never stand up for their faith ever another time. You know why? Because they tried one time and it failed. And how many things in church do we try just once? And never, ever, ever try them again. That is the history of the church. That is what we do best. Quit. It didn't work. I guess I'm just not meant to do that. I'm sorry, guys. Sometimes it don't work. But we don't quit. People who start a business and it fails don't never start another business. You know what they do? They dare to fail again. You know why? Because they're going to be quitters. But we'll quit on this. So, so David gives us some solace, but he also gives us a direction. I want to show that to you. First, he makes it clear that malicious witnesses will rise up. That men and women of God have to realize that the world hates them, loathes them. Now, I know it's hard for us to comprehend, guys, because first off, a lot of us don't really practice the kind of vicious hatred that the lost heart allows to be practiced. It's not that we can't hate people. We can. We are sinners. But without the grace of God applied to a life, there's a viciousness of hatred that is demonic in its nature that we are not able to practice. But the other one is, is really worse. And that is most of us really hate the idea of anybody not liking us. We just can't stand it. What did I do? Now part of it is, is that part of the solution here, just give me a second, is that we tend to attribute to lost people who despise us in, a, you know, in, in completion of prophecy this kind of reasonable nature. You know, again, lived in the Christian faith until people have absolutely hated your guts and nobody could tell you why they hated your guts. You know why they hate your guts? Because they're lost. 
They're lost. They saw something in your life. It doesn't mean that you're just this glowing example of Jesus. But they saw some spark in your life that just brought out on them the most demonic hatred. They don't know why they hate you. They can't know why they hate you. It's part of their nature to hate you. It's like, why does a shark eat something smaller than it? Because sharks eat things. It's their nature. The shark doesn't hate the seal. The shark just eats seals. That's what they do. It's just natural. Never will a Christian brother or sister who remains faithful to the Word of God be accepted or embraced by this evil world. Never. If we really remain faithful, they will hate us. If we really do what God's called us to do, if we're really faithful in the way that God has commanded we be, they are going to hate us. And it should not shock us, but it will. It should not depress us, but it always does. But that is the truth. All that we can do is take one or the other of two alternatively unfaithful actions. I mean, other than embracing this, we got two actions we'll take, and both of them are unfaithful. Now, look here. One, compromise our beliefs in order to agree with what the world wants us to say and eventually believe. I know a lot of us have made fun of. Uh, anybody hear the prayer? The I'm in and I'm woman prayer? I don't know how to not scoff at that. Even when my kids at school, I'm like, guys, this is the, it's, it's, it's so dumb. There's nothing I can say to be generous like a Christian about this. It's just ridiculous. And as, and as, any, as a lot of people pointed out, the I'm in and out one part's not even the bad part. By a so called pastor. And I'm like, that's. Insanity. But you know, that's, that's an answer. There's an answer to the world demonstrated before us right there. Just compromise everything so that the world will accept it all and you won't have any problem with the world. Stop being a Christian believer. An Orthodox Christian believer by any definable way. You stop believing what makes them mad and they'll leave you alone. That's the message. That's the message that was illustrated for us. But it's the message the Bible would reject. Because you've got two bad options here if you don't want to just simply embrace the fact that we're going to be hated. One is to compromise everything we believe, act like that guy, and just say nonsense that the, that, that, uh, the lost will love, but we realize insults the living God. Or, or do what David could have done. Fight back aggressively, violently, wickedly with the same gusto and corrupted hearts that have attacked us. We don't like the election, we burn the capital down. We don't like the way things are going, we won't trust our God, we put a torch to it. It's been tried a whole lot of times and all it does is destroy and it never builds. Like I said, David could have done this. Somebody, How dare somebody talk about David this way? Well, I met a lot of people who thought they were tough. None of them was David. None of them was even close. Joab was a bad dude, and he did just what David said every time. Do you know why? Because David wasn't just the king. David was the greatest warrior in the land. He took, he took down Goliath as an afterthought. I'd have been shaken. He wasn't shaken. He ran toward 
You know why? Because David wasn't afraid. Deal with aggression the old-fashioned way with the sword. Remember when David's being pursued by Absalom? What sword does he carry? Goliath's. Imagine you show up at their house with Goliath's sword. That'll shut some mouths, won't it? There's the unfaithfulness. Because the defense comes from what? My power, my strength. And I might add, if I choose that path, I've got to be able to win. God's not going to bless that. God's not going to endorse that. I'm going to be Samson without the hair. No power, no strength, no might. I better be able to whoop them. If I can't whip them, they're right and I'm wrong. I've dishonored my God. I've dishonored the truth that I claim to live by because I thought I could handle things in, in God's eyes with man's methods. Neither of these options brings to Christ Jesus the glory that He deserves through our lives, our actions, and our passions. Look, in a strange way, let me explain. Peter used womanhood to define the path forward for the believer when he writes in 1 Peter 3, 3-4. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The humility and the rejection of worldly attitudes and adornment for men and women is at the heart of what Christ demands from us. In the end, we are Christ first in here and then demonstrated out here. And if I say I'm in here, but the outer demonstration looks like the rest of the world and acts like the rest of the world, then I lie. Then I lie. It wasn't just for women's dress, but the attitude that who you are on the inside formulates who you are on the outside. To be a Christian is to be so in the heart, at the core of the woman or the man, and for this supernatural transformation to be so complete that it redefines the nature of the person. We have been, def we have been reconstructed on the inside by the Holy Spirit using the gospel so that we are now radically different people on the outside. Paul supports this when he writes in Romans 7.22, For delight in the law of God in my inner being. Where is my joy in Christ? Right here in the center. Right where it belongs. Remaking me in the image of God. Because what I say I believe now changes everything about me. See, we run into this all the time in our own personal lives. We run into this in the church, guys. When we clearly know the Bible teaches something, but our mama or our daddy or grandmother or grandfather mistakenly taught something else. And what do we want to hang on to? That thing, brothers and sisters, that we've always believed. Why? Because we realize that those ideas like that define who we are. What has He done? He's given us a different song, a different truth, a different definition. And it's God's and it comes from the gospel. And it rejects all pretenders. It doesn't care what my daddy taught me. No matter how much I love my dad. It only cares about what is true. Because what Christ says trumps what anyone else says. What Christ says is always verifiable, always authentically true. 
For each of us who love and honor Christ as Savior and Lord, kindness and a gentle spirit given by the transformation of the internal person, by the beauty of the gospel, are the fundamental and the defining characteristics of the Christian. We have no choice but to conform our lives to this image, the image of Christ Himself. Second, when we act with kindness and good faith toward the world, the enemies of the cross always attack us in every way possible. So when we try to do the right path, it's always going to bring attacks on us. It's always going to do that. We hope and pray this response gives us peace. It doesn't give peace. It brings the sword. Every time. There's no scenario, no combination of compromises or rationalizations that will allow God's people to avoid the impact of the vile nature of the world upon themselves and the church. The Lord brings this information to our consciousness by explaining in John 15, 17-19. It begins with this statement. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now we understand that love is a measure by which the world can embrace the validity of the gospel message itself. The love between brothers and sisters in Christ for which there's a worldly parallel. The church, the miracle, the miraculous nature of the church is to take individual lives that are not biologically related, make them spiritual brothers and sisters, and unite them forever. We will be brothers and sisters eternally, not just with each other, but with Christians we've never seen. We'll never meet, whose names we'll never know, who've long since been dead, but they are related to us. Not in a ceremonial or symbolic way, but in a real and true and permanent way. That's right. We have black sisters and brown sisters and yellow sisters and red sisters scattered all across the world. And they are more our sisters and brothers than the people that our mothers and fathers produced. They are eternally, in an everlasting fashion, our family. We are this great, multiracial, multiethnic, multilanguage family of God created by the gospel. And the love we show each other teaches the world that there's nothing out there like this. This is unique. It can't have it without embracing Christ. However, the Lord goes on to explain why this love is so necessary for the church to practice. He says in verses 18 through 19, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So he says, we're to love each other. I command these things I command you so that you will love one another. Then he says, if the world hates you, you know, that's hated me before it hates you. So we embrace, we, we must love each other because the world is going to hate each other. We're not getting any love from it. The only love we get is from this. We can't neglect to love the church. Because if we neglect to love the church, then the church just withers. And it dies because it's only getting hatred from the world. It'll be tempted to go out to the world for the, for the false love it can get, right? If we don't offer the true love here. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The believer exists in a world of unremitting hostility that defines our walk as much as any internal factor. We all face it every day. The world around us turns our very stomachs. The stench of its wicked, child-murdering ways brings us all to trembling and uncertain knees. 
Now that's the thing that still, even though I know it to be true, and I know the, I know it's, I know in many ways the enemies of, of of our Lord and the embracers of the devil have always done this. It still shocks me, shocks me the callous nature by which we murder children, as if they did not matter. And every mama that you've ever met that was was expecting a baby knew to love their child. That sin is so insidious and so wicked that it would teach a woman, teach a man that it's okay to slaughter a child. I'm shocked by that. That's what we see. That's what the world is. To us, we look out there and they can show us all the bells and whistles and all the decorations and all the total nonsense and all we see is the blood of the innocents. Why would we reject uh, dare even to embrace one party over the other. I'll tell you why. Because just to be quite blunt with you, and I'm no fan of either one, I'll just say this. One advocates murdering children in the womb and the other doesn't. You had me at don't murder babies. It is, it is an infamy that will echo into eternity that the richest country on the face of the planet in the history of this planet thought it was okay to murder babies. Advocated it. Promoted it around the world. We know to rely on Christ. We understand from this passage that the world hates us because it rejects the authenticity of our Lord Jesus and His gospel message. That is of no consequence to the truth that they rejected. It changes nothing. However, we also understand that life is hard and the love of each other, the church for the church, is essential to our survival and must be a mission of this body of believers. Our very first mission. That we're to love each other. We are to build each other up with Christian love. Third, having a declared enemy, someone who has attacked us and sought to harm us physically, emotionally, or in terms of reputation, is for the Scriptures an opportunity for the Gospel truth to be demonstrated and declared. Now this is what floors me about Psalm 35. When they hate us, we respond with the Gospel. And the more they hate you, the more they rain stones upon us, the more they scoff and mock, the more we demonstrate the glory of God for them. David tells us, he writes in that very passage, they repaid me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they are sick, were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. We know the world always responds to us evil for good and it always bereaves our souls. You love somebody enough to tell them about the gospel. Because let's be honest, for a lot of us in this room, to summon the courage to stand before somebody and to, to proclaim gospel truth is something we had to pray and pray about, right? I'm not saying that's the right approach from us, but I'm saying I know people well enough that when somebody, when a believer, when an average humdrum, everyday believer in a Baptist church goes to a friend or goes to a family member or goes to a stranger or goes to an enemy, and shares the gospel. They are not doing that in a casual way. They have prayed and they have prepared their hearts for it. And we know good and well that they will always respond. Evil for good. And it always breaks our hearts. It always does. Some of the most desperate people I've ever talked to were those who had shared, faithfully shared the gospel and had it thrown right back in their faces. We understand that. 
broken hearted and destroyed by the wickedness of this world, we are never satisfied with what we receive from the lost. But we also should never be shocked. In other words, the way I've said it oftentimes in, our present, in, in, in your presence, guys, is this. Don't be shocked when lost people act lost. Because they're lost. They don't know any better. They're natural. They're wicked by nature. They're children of wrath. When you were a child of wrath, you act the same way. You were the same. By definition. After all, we have the Bible to teach us. The reason we're different is because the Bible teaches us all the time. However, notice David's biblical response. When they are sick, we mourn for them. We pray and fast for them. Even if they are evil, if they attack us, we respond in the only fashion that the believer can respond. As Jesus Christ would. Jesus Christ offered mercy to those who took His life. Scoffers, scoffers received mercy from a Lord who could have conquered them like no other. We pray and we grieve for them. They act like their master the devil and we act like our master the son of man. Parentage matters. Raising matters and spiritual lineage defines more than any other factor. We belong to the Prince of Peace and even in terrible times, it must be our desire to live on this earth as Christ commanded and as He demonstrated for the world to see. When our worst enemy flounders or fails, it is our sworn duty to extend the love and the joy of Christ through caring for them and grieving with them. That's how the gospel contained the most savage heart. They are evil. We try to act like our master. When they are stricken, we mourn and we fast and we pray. Despite the darkness of the world around us and likewise the terrible times in which David reigned and struggled, the joy of our servanthood to Christ must be the inherent condition of our souls. Look in the focal passage in Psalm 35, 9-10. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in His salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. David defines our faith. Excuse me, our faithfulness and gospel witness in two terms that are staggering in this passage and serve as a goal for us. So in all of that teaching, we understand it. Now we get to this, this kind of snippet that we can really take with us. So what's our response to everything around us, to the depth of the wickedness of the, of the world and the, and the joy and the light of the gospel. First, David's soul rejoices. And now, folks, I need to unleash my soul to rejoice. My soul can't be fettered by circumstances. It must be liberated by gospel truth. It can't reside in the shallows because of what I see around me. It must strive must strive for the depth of joy that only Christ can bring. When my soul, the very essence of who I am for all eternity, belongs to Christ and it must, it has to rejoice in the glory of the one who died to save me. No matter who's president, Jesus Christ died and rose. No matter what happens to me, no matter how I'm stricken, no matter how I might be sick or I might be poor or I might have trouble, Jesus Christ died and he rose. That essential factor for us has never changed. And it never will. We may go pitifully to an early death. Jesus awaits. Jesus awaits. 
When the rich or the powerful or the vile rob us of every good thing that cannot take the joy that resides in our souls. It is untouchable what Christ has transplanted in the soul of man. We cannot lose the joy that Christ died to give us. Also, our very bones declare the exemplary nature of Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior of the church. The bodies we possess, the love that we practice, the works that we accomplish through the Holy Spirit are consistent even when the world around us burns. What is in the soul of the believer and practice in the life of the church must reflect our King, who we are as a redeemed people, and not the temptation to act in frustration and anger, bringing shame to our Lord. See, here's the thing. He doesn't just rule over my soul and bring joy. The bones are His too. The flesh, He owns this. Bought at a price. He owns me in servanthood. And so the joy that's in my soul must shine through my life. He's given us the example of how to do it. Despite the, uh, as, as Shakespeare would say, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Despite the attacks of the world. Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. And so, so therefore our demonstration of Him cannot change. Must not change. Christian love must reign in the church forever. It's the hallmark of the gospel that's in us. That saved us now defines our lives. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach your word. And I pray, Father God, that I have done it rightly. I thank you, Father, for, for allowing me to be here, Father God. I pray for this country, Father God. I pray for peace in the midst of chaos, Father God. But I know, Father God, that the chaos that is being demonstrated now reigns in human hearts, Father God. The chaos of leadership that's also been, Father God, in both parties is because the wickedness of human hearts reign, Father God. Because we've departed from your truth. We've kicked it to the side. We have denied it and despised it, Father God. And now we're reaping the the whirlwind. As a nation we reap the whirlwind, Father God. Until there's revival in this land we'll always have chaos in the hearts of leadership, Father God. Until we're led by, by men and women called for purpose, Father God, whose hearts have been made servants to the glory of the gospel, Father, we'll always live just like this. Why we should expect anything different is what surprises me. We are getting now, Father God, what we should have gotten a long time ago. Father God, I pray now, Lord, that your truth reigns in the midst of this chaos, Father God. That you will raise up leaders, Father, that love you. That, Father God, are willing to practice their faith in public. That it begins in churches like this, Father. That we can never depend on Washington, Father God, to solve the spiritual problems of our own town. Because we can't. I pray, Father God, that you'll begin in pews just like these among common folk, Father God, to raise up a different generation, one that rejects the world and that loves the truth, Father God, and is willing to practice it. One that is overcome by joy and demonstrating their bones, Father God, the, the glory of Jesus. They won't act in frustration, Father God, and they won't act in anger. But, Father God, they'll act as if you, Father God, have called them out of the very darkness that's demonstrated by this world to be a light for it. We love you, God. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.